0: Hello, and welcome to Moving the Needle on Wicked Problems. Today, we're going to take a break from our mini series on racism. But for sure, we will return to that shortly. Today, we want to talk about immigration. Most of the correspondence I get, emails, tweets, petitions are from people who are concerned about their immigration status or their process or concerned about immigration in one way or another. We learned just recently that that there are nearly 1.8 million people in the backlog for processing applications of new immigrants. That's a good news, bad news stories, because 1.8 million people want to come to Canada. That's terrific. But 1.8 million people backlogged in in a backlog, that's not great. Maybe some of this is because of COVID, but there are likely other reasons as well. You know, people have talked about IRCC not being client-focused enough, despite some changes that have been made. Or maybe there are other reasons. Yeah, absolutely, Senator.
1: Um, And, you know, we also wanted to talk about, you know, an issue that is actually very close to your heart. Uh, the pandemic laid bare who the essential workers are in Canada. You know, I'm thinking about caregivers, farm laborers that put their health and safety at risk to look after our loved ones and to put food on our table. Canadians have recognized their contribution, but in many ways, the government hasn't. You know, despite being essential, they're also temporary in the eyes of Canadian immigration. So we wanted to delve into that question about, you know, what immigrants that we need in Canada and what's the best way to bring them here. With that, let's get to the interview.
0: To help us in our conversation on immigration, I'm delighted to have Ian Reeve, who is the Associate Director for Immigration Knowledge Area at the Conference Board of Canada. He runs the board's immigration research agenda and manages the National Immigration Center. Yilmaz Dinch is a Senior Research Associate for the Immigration Knowledge Area at the Conference Board of Canada. Welcome to both of you. Thank you for taking the time to speak to us today. Thanks so much.
2: Thank you.
0: So, you know, let me, let me start off by asking a big, big picture question. So, migration, immigration, integration, inclusion, all of these are not just about nations. They're also about economies, culture, politics, and they're finally about people. And the success of immigration is usually measured, usually measured by its impact on the receiving country. But there are always other winners and losers as well. Can we transform this construct into a winning proposition for all, especially as the world recovers from the COVID crisis?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that's a really good question. It's something that I've always thought about uh, going all the way back to when I first started studying immigration and studying multiculturalism and just international mobility. Um, We should always be asking ourselves this question. I mean, Canada is, um, as you said, a country that tends to uh, think about our immigration um, in terms of what it means for Canada, what it means for our society, for our economy. Um, But I think as a country that does want to, um, you know, has humanitarian objectives around the world, wants to be a good global citizen, we should think about uh, the balance of how our immigration impacts uh, countries that people come from. And, you know, one thing that always comes up, of course, especially given Canada's big focus on Uh, highly skilled international labor uh, is the number of international professionals that are leaving uh, countries uh, that may have an even more severe shortage of skills than we have um, and what that means for the sort of uh, balance of global skills Um, I think the people that have been most inspiring in this area are immigrants to Canada themselves who very often have a focus back on the countries that they come from either to uh, give back in skills or even in money, um, sometimes to go back Uh, and I think that's our big advantage if we are going to be successful in in helping other countries at the same time as as having a a positive immigration policy is really giving our immigrants more and more opportunities and encouraging them to connect with uh, the countries that they come from. Um, but I think that a good immigration policy needs to go along with a good sort of global development policy uh, that sees us balance you know, both our objectives and what we want to see in Canada, uh, but to also help other countries around the world.
0: Right, now, it would really be interesting to have uh, sort of uh, you know scorecards or indicators of how immigrants are in fact Themselves contributing to the global economy by being connected and reshaping the communities they came from in in some small ways, and I'm not sure that's done as uh, diligently as the work on uh, making immigration a winning proposition for Canada. Maybe it's a time for rebalance, but um, mm-hmm. and and that's definitely something we we I I I that's a really good point and maybe we need to uh, you know encourage our academics and our analysts to do both winning proposition for canada but what about the source country how can we make it a winning proposition for the source country very uh, true. as as you and i and most other people who are who who study this file know that uh, immigration is has its backers and it has its detractors especially in in this these days of polarization uh, but when you look at what economists say uh, you know many economists have weighed in with criticism that growth of our population and our economy through immigration is 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 not in in and of itself a healthy objective for Canada, instead we should focus on increasing GDP growth per capita. If we don't do that, we will only bring more people in, but there will be greater inequality. What is your answer to, to, uh, to this question? Yeah, um, our own
3: research shows that overall there's a lot of positives uh, for The economy with uh, higher immigration levels uh, to Canada, uh, growing GDP, growing government revenues. Um, enhancing the labor market, allowing businesses to grow by letting them, uh, you know, find skilled workers that they might not otherwise have access to, or that our post-secondary and other education system might not be producing at the levels that we need. These are all benefits, uh, but it's true, um, and our own research uh, validates this, that um, there is, you know, overall a minor net negative impact on GDP per capita if immigration levels are higher and higher. Uh, but we don't see that as a product um, inherently of immigration. We see that as a product of of inefficiency of integrating immigrants into the labor market. Um, we all know, I think uh, you know, Statistics Canada has reported for some time that there's a very significant lag um, between uh, how long it takes an immigrant from arrival um, to the point at which they make uh, a living and, and they earn salaries and wages at a level that's commiserate with their skills and education compared to those that are born in Canada. We're talking about uh, 10 or 13 years overall. We're talking about five or six years even for the highest skilled, most in demand. Um, uh, skills uh, the newcomers bring. Um, So we think that if we improve uh, the speed at which people are integrated into the labor force and are are as productive as they can be in using their skills, uh, that benefits Canada uh, because I think it improves the GDP per capita question by making them more productive. But obviously it's more um, as importantly, if not more importantly, it's the best outcome for the newcomers who are probably doing more satisfying work and earning um, at a level that'll be more satisfying and probably more in line with their objectives Uh, Yomez, anything to add on that piece?
2: I think an important point is while we are trying to address the GDP per capita challenge, is looking at the employer side, what needs to happen for employers to be able to onboard immigrant talent to make sure that immigrants are leveraging their full talent set because that will have positive economic outcomes. And at the same time, are we providing the necessary settlement supports to the immigrants that we are welcoming? Can they access the services? Are they eligible? Are these the services that they need that they they might be eligible, but the services may not be needing their needs and Canada's composition of immigrants is changing as we admit, you know, immigrants from different countries from different backgrounds. Are the settlement services keeping up? I think as we answer and think about these questions, we don't see necessarily increasing GDP and increasing GDP per capita can happen at the same time through making sure that, you know, we build inclusive workplaces and make sure settlement services are accessible and available. Yeah,
3: and the last thing I'd add is there just um, there are a lot of other factors, I think you probably significantly more important factors outside of immigration that impact equality that impact because GDP per capita isn't necessarily a measure of equality, right? GDP per capita could go uh, up and inequality could still grow. Um, if more and more of that wealth is concentrated higher up um, and, and you know, people in working class jobs may have, have access to less of that. So I think there's a lot of other factors, uh, more important factors that impact exactly how um, equality is felt on the ground by, by most people that, that live and work in Canada, regardless of whether they're born in Canada or immigrants.
1: You know, we 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 just had an election, and and you know most of the major parties, if all of the major parties, uh, you know, have in their platforms pro-immigrant sort of policies and ideas. Uh, I think there's in general relatively a consensus, you know, politically at this point that you know immigration is good for the country, that it will you know deal with various issues that we have, uh, labor shortages, etc. But how do we maintain that? Uh, positive outlook on immigration, not only in political circles, we could, you know, you, you can touch on that if you like, uh, but I'm thinking more about the hearts and minds of Canadians where they are continue to be su- supportive of immigration. Uh, you know, what do we have to do to, to keep that level of support, you know, strong and stable?
3: Yeah. Um... I think right off the bat, I would I, I don't focus as much on the on convincing politicians because I think that the political side follows the public. I think that if there were big cleavages uh, that the parties could uh, could could prey on, um, that were more insecure about immigration or more critical of immigration, then they would go there. Um, if the population remains very well disposed towards immigration and, and mostly believe that immigration is a positive force for Canadian society and economy, then the parties will will follow them. So that's where I'm most interested. I'm most interested kind of where you focused, Paul, on, on how do we maintain the sort of strong public support that I think is like internationally pretty important and pretty distinct uh, within Canada. And I think it's uh, continuing to succeed. Uh, Canada's policies have, have been a big reason why support for immigration has been so high for so long. And it's because we have a program that I think has had a balance, maybe not always a perfect balance, but certainly a strong balance between focusing on those that can come and contribute uh, economically and, and fill skill gaps and, and succeed on that side of things, but then also um, a strong humanitarian side that focuses on other rationales and other justifications for inviting people to come to Canada. Um, it's this diversity of goals, it's the fact that you see um, immigrants from all over the world at all levels of Canadian society and economy and in every type of job um, that's pretty distinct from what's happened in some countries in Europe where a lot of immigration focus folk- Focused on filling skill gaps at the lowest level and created a sort of stratified society where immigrants filled work that people that were born in those countries maybe didn't want to do. Canada hasn't followed that path. I think continuing to um, do as we've done will go a long way. Um, but you know, if we're going to be more ambitious and welcome more and more people, uh, we may need to continue to be more creative. Um, I'd, I'd love to hear what other, anyone else has to say about that.
2: Um, I think it's really important. Like immigration is critical in terms of supporting the programs and services available to Canadians, investments in schools, investments in healthcare. Um, but sometimes it's hard for everyday Canadian to relate to the economic potential of immigration in their daily lives. So I think demonstrating that impact, the positive impact on people's lives, on people's jobs, on people's access to healthcare. Um, you know, our recent report on the role of immigrants in essential work has shown that there are many immigrants working in healthcare, which makes it easier for all Canadians, immigrants or not, to access healthcare services. And demonstrating that impact, make that people are aware that they benefit from immigration on a day-to-day basis. I think will come a long way.
1: One thing, and I think, sorry, go ahead, Ian.
2: Just the last thing I'd add is there is going to be a
3: really interesting. Uh, sort of arena where this where this is going to be a really important conversation in the next couple decades and that's in smaller communities in canada mm-hmm. you know we're seeing more and more emphasis from governments uh, at the federal and provincial level um, as well as from uh, employers and and even from immigrants themselves to disperse immigrants uh, outside of just our bigger cities at an increasing level to try to encourage immigrants to consider um, smaller cities or, or or even rural and and, and um, small communities. Uh, That's where it's going to be very interesting. These are communities that haven't had as many immigrants um, living, uh, uh, you know, within their their areas and and working with them and living in their communities um, over the past several years. So that's going to be the the interesting place. I think that there's a huge opportunity for communities to benefit from this, to grow, to become more diverse, to be um, really successful economically. Um, But we we shouldn't pretend that that's not going to be a sort of different type of challenge and and, uh, um, a different uh, sort of uh, pattern of immigration than we've seen in Canada over the last, you know, 50 60 years
1: you were actually reading my mind i was going right there uh, <laughs> uh with that and i you know i think uh, before i get to my next question i think i think that's where a big challenge is it doesn't seem to me that that we are prepared for that real sort of distribution of immigrants across the country i know there's like pilot projects and things like that that are going on but the you know an actual strategy seems to be a little bit far off and we can you know sort of get into that in a, a, a little bit but you know so i'm i'm wondering though like you know we obviously are somewhat coming out of the pandemic, you know, who knows what wave we're in now. You know, we have <laughs> vaccines, that sort of thing. Uh, you know, the pandemic closed borders, obviously. Um, so, you know, there was lots of impact on immigration, about being able to get people from outside the country into the country. You know, we had a lot of people that were in the country that that will also, you know, fill, fill certain roles for Canadians, you know, in our immigration system. You know, what do we, what does Canada need to do as borders are opening, as our immigration system is sort of getting back up and running to recover from the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we've, we've handled it rather
3: well. Uh, the system, you know, there was an initial really significant shock to everything, right, to, to processing um, within the government, to the support services around government that, uh, that do things like language assessments and credential assessments. I mean, everyone kicked, getting kicked out of their office really changed um, how everyone did business and enforced a lot of adaptation. So once the system recovered and once all these adaptations happened, um, the system has actually performed really well, and of course, the governments have uh, gotten creative and found ways to continue to to make uh, PR available to to really high numbers of people, focusing on those that are already here um, due to travel restrictions. Um, but that that creativity has been has been helpful, I think, at least in maintaining numbers. We'll see what the sort of long-term impacts of of these changes are. Um, But all that to say, um, you know, as things open up, I think we will have a pretty easy time getting back to normal. I think, you know, uh, surveys have shown there's been no drop in interest uh, for people to come to Canada. In fact, maybe interest has grown because there's an increased uh, economic anxiety in countries around the world of how they're going to weather the post pandemic economy. Uh, So I think, um, you know, we've managed to to weather the worst parts of the pandemic and so as things open up i think it's just going to get easier and easier um, to me the more interesting question is just what are we going to learn from these adaptations that we made during the pandemic and, and what
0: lessons can they teach us that is so true i mean during the pandemic in order to keep working at keeping our numbers somewhat in sight of our goal mm-hmm. uh, canada put many sacred cows out to pasture and, and i think <laughs> Those are those are really important disruptive innovations that the department should consider. Yep. But there's still a massive backlog. In my introduction to this uh, podcast, I noted there are 1.8 million people apparently in all kinds of streams backlogged. And I cannot open my Twitter feed or my email every day without getting, you know, Many of these, you know, help me, haven't been, haven't seen my husband for so many years. My federal skilled worker visa came through. I'm so, I've sold everything, but I'm still stuck in India. How can all this be overcome? It's
3: challenging. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's a resource issue. Um, and so can the government uh, bring in more people to speed up processing? Um, the, the thing that makes me a little bit nervous is at the same time that all this is happening with backlogs and, And service disruptions, the government's also talking about service modernization and bringing in um, a new digital system, which frankly is very, very overdue and very, very essential to making us a more modern and more efficient immigration system. Uh, Doing a big tech transformation at the same time that you're dealing with backlogs is uh, potentially hazardous. Uh, It makes me a little bit nervous, but if it's successful, I think that's another thing. It should make uh, all these processes significantly more efficient, can hopefully help us eventually get through backlog and then make us more resistant to these types of delays in the
0: future. So you kind of you know read my mind on the next question. <laughs> uh, glitches, absolutely. I would not, you know, I, when I think of the impact of these glitches on people's lives, I, I they can be horrendous. A list of, uh, of Afghan, Uh, Afghan people on a list uh, who are still in Afghanistan, still waiting to be evacuated, leaked one way or another. I mean, that's horrendous. Um, And there have also been concerns about the application of AI to to uh, to to files, and you and I have both read uh, that the AI is either discriminatory or refusing applicants uh, for for no apparent reason. And so I agree with you; it's time to bring IRCC into the digital world and the use of AI. But something seems to be not right in its implementation. Are these startup problems? Mm-hmm. Or 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 are they endemic to a bureaucracy uh, that has been plagued by implementation issues for many 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 years? Truly,
3: um, and that's that's where my nervousness comes from. We've seen a lot of projects, um, government tech modernization projects, that have caused problems and caused significant delays. And as you say, I mean, I think modernization is essential the use of these tools can be very effective but there's always going to be um, issues and problems but when you're talking about something like immigration those small hiccups and small problems have such massive impacts on people's lives so we're not just talking about um, delays in sending out records or uh, um, people not getting their driver's license quite on time or, or or you know more minor things you know having to wait in line longer at the grocery store or something we're talking about people that are making a fundamental change in their lives and take a huge amount of risk risk, uh, making themselves very vulnerable. And so uh, small, seemingly small glitches can have a huge impact. Um, but what I'd say, on the other hand, is it's that risk aversion that sometimes make makes government delay these things too long. It's a fear that bringing a new system will cause problems, will bring complaints, will bring um, condemnation that makes them slow to modernize. And then either they fall so far behind that it becomes, you know, challenging and even embarrassing um, compared to other systems that exist in the world, um, or the system totally passes them by, and and they're no longer effective at doing the work, you know, decades on after after things have modernized. So. Um, The sad truth is that any change is always going to have some disruption, those disruptions are going to have an impact, but ultimately we need to be brave enough to continue to hope to build a a better system that could be more fair. Um,
2: Yeah, Yilmaz, any thoughts? I think intentionality and awareness is really important as well. Usually algorithmic tools or AI tools, uh, you know, they they work based on previously collected data and we know across the world. This is not just IRCC, not just Canada, but across the world as we are deploying AI tools and as we look at data that was collected over the last 20, 30 years, there's a lots of bias that's built into that data and that influences how these tools operate. So being aware of that and being intentional in program design, uh, you know integrating the necessary kind of human elements to make sure that you know uh, these kind of glitches don't affect people's lives don't affect people's applications I think that's that's the really important principle that we need to adhere to to make sure that AI works for everyone involved.
1: And I guess you also want to have the, the system where it evolves over time, where they're open to hearing criticisms, they're open to hearing issues, to be able to you know, make sure that they make a, adjustments to the AI algorithms and systems that they are using. I wanted to, before we get into one of the, the sacred pastures that's sort of been thrown out the window because of the pandemic, I just wanted to follow up on this one idea about the distribution of uh, new immigrants and newcomers across the country. Is there any sort of helpful thoughts, hints about how the government can do this and do this well, uh, because it's not only the federal government, it's obviously the provincial governments and local governments and local businesses and all that sort of stuff that have to essentially, you know, welcome in and, and provide services for, for new immigrants in their communities. What can be done to, to really make that happen? So we don't only have immigrants going to Toronto and Vancouver and, and Montreal. We have a, a real distribution around the country.
3: Yomaz, yeah, why don't you take the lead on that one because you've been doing work in this area that or that we're going to be releasing in the not so distant future
2: i think the the the, the case for having immigrants you know Intending or destining them to settle in smaller and rural communities is very clear. Most of the time those communities have populations that are aging even faster than the Metropolitan centers. The skills and labor shortages accordingly are becoming worse over time. But I think it's really, you know, not just a question of attracting immigrants there, but also retaining them and that that includes a lot of factors than just, you know, the federal immigration programs or, you know, provincial immigration programs and just the selection of immigrants. That means when immigrants arrive in a small or rural Community that they have access to support to be able to you know socially integrate find a job find affordable housing find childcare use the transportation system if not they need a car and that you know that really adds up this is not just the challenge that could be addressed by traditional settlement services it requires the engagement of every level of government it requires the engagement of local employers to make sure that immigrants settling in these communities can find Relevant economic opportunities. It's a question of social supports again. And at the end of the day, it's about the inclusion of the community. If the community is not welcoming of the immigrants, if the immigrants don't feel that they belong there, they're not going to stay. So, no matter how much you invest in attraction, without retention, it's not going to work. And retention uh, requires, you know, a lot of collaboration at all levels.
0: Uh Can can I pursue that a little? Because I'm really interested in this. In this. I think national imperative to distribute the benefits of immigration throughout our country and and therefore, uh, you know, uh, shore up our multicultural society in all parts of Canada, as opposed to, you know, urban centers. Yilmaz, what do you think about that? There are pros and cons, obviously, uh, to cluster settlement, you know, where you bring not one uh, uh, Afghan family, but you bring, five or six, and so, you know, there may be 20, 25 people. And so in that way, they're not completely isolated. Uh, They can set up their own quasi local efforts in in local institutions, and and they have, uh, uh, you know, sort of a sense of belonging to their community and to their new place. On the other hand, on the other hand, I have heard one of my colleagues is who, you know, was came to Canada and went to a remote community um, and and became a doctor there. And he just says that was the best experience of his life, partly because he had to grab the bull by the horns and do everything on his own. So there's a, a balance to that. Can you do you have an opinion on 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 either side?
2: I think um having a community definitely eases the transition process initially like when families land they can turn to each other for Uh, support whether you know it's trying to build a social life or looking for a job i think that initial support will be really important there will always be immigrants who are on their own who navigate the process i'm an immigrant myself i mean i didn't settle in small communities but i had to do everything myself because i didn't know anybody and there are lots of immigrants and i think they will also be able to succeed in small and rural communities but the question is really when they are interacting you know When they have a job and when they're interacting with employees in their company with their colleagues or when they want to spend their evening outside and when when they go out, the the people that they interact with, do they feel that they are connected? Do They feel that they belong to the community. I think there are multiple ways to achieve it. There is no one set way uh, to do that and individual preferences also uh, play a role, but I think community by engaging employers, engaging the local governments, you know, nonprofit organization. that is really, really important to make sure that the process works for all the level of turning to those supports will differ across uh, immigrants, but I think having those in place overall is very important for success of regionalization.
3: Yeah, the, the only thing I'd add is, um, Yulmaz points to is the necessity to bring really all the most important people in a community together and to have a real consensus about the importance of, of welcoming and retaining immigrants and we're talking about the traditional players of settlement services and community services but and governments but we're talking about the employers we're talking about community associations or or clubs or whatever that have nothing to do with immigration um, but are willing to be part of that consensus and lend a hand um, i think what we've seen so far is the communities that have that can be successful both at attracting and retaining people and communities that don't might struggle a bit more and so i don't think that there should be any harm in saying um, let's throw our support behind the communities that have reached that consensus and are and are willing to to work uh, together and swim in the same and you know row in the same direction on attracting and retaining people. And others might, just might take more time to come around. There might be some people in those communities uh, that want to see this, and others that are uncertain or more resistant, and it might take time. But I think the more success stories we have, the more communities will will see an opportunity to to to. to you know, have similar successes there. So um, we're not starting totally from zero. We already have some good successful examples in small communities across the country. Um, let's learn from those and continue to to promote those that are willing to take those steps and and not push communities that aren't really there yet. Um, not everyone has to, has to do this. We don't want to send people into situations um, or to encourage them to go into situations where they're going to face serious hardship or struggle when there's other options um, in places all across the country.
1: Yeah, I think I think one of the ones that that jumps out to me is you know, in an Antigonish, Nova Scotia, with Peace mm-hmm. by Chocolate, you know, Syrian yeah. refugees coming in and you know, creating a, a great company there, and and you know, and then it's really taken off all across Canada. So they were welcomed in Antigonish, but then it's taken across Canada. You know, yep. one of the things that I wanted to focus in on, uh, and and you, the Conference Board, you you just you you've just published a study on this, is that one of the sacred cows that you know I think that 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 has been in the immigration system for a long time and we've talked about this to a certain degree already is is this focus on high skilled immigrants that's you know that's generally where you know the path to permanent residency sort of exists and then when we deal with lower skilled, uh, so-called lower skilled, because I don't think they're lower skilled, but lower skilled, uh, you know, they're more on a temporary sort of uh, visa or whatever. And they're often even just temporary foreign workers as well, in the sense of, you know, working on farms and, and you know, uh, in our homes as caregivers, etc. You know, but we realized during the pandemic that... In fact, they're not the low-skilled. They're actually the essential skilled workers that we need. So, you know, what what how should we be thinking about essential workers and you know about the workers that we actually need in Canada?
2: Um, that's a great question. I think what we have seen during the pandemic is. An economy has to be resilient. And the way we have leveraged immigration so far in Canada was through prioritizing highly educated, highly skilled immigrants. And they do bring important economic benefits. We still need, you know, high tech talent, people working in finance and IT. But what we have also seen through the pandemic is there's a critical part of the economy that requires a diverse skill set, not necessarily low and high, but different skills. Skills that may not necessarily be tied to qualifications obtained in schools. And an economy cannot be resilient and cannot really uh, embrace a shock like the pandemic or tackle a shock like the pandemic while there are vast labor shortages in uh, occupations that are deemed as essential. In There are jobs that the domestic workforce is not interested in or are not attracted to. And then what happens is these jobs uh, are taken by people who are either overqualified, shouldn't be in that job in the first place, who are mostly newcomers, or temporary workers who oftentimes face uh, vulnerabilities around visa status or vulnerabilities around precarious work. So I think what, what what's really going to happen going forward is the country, countries across the world and Canada need to think about how do we ensure that you know we find the right skills for the essential jobs how do we compensate and provide career mobility to essential workers so these are jobs that are attractive to uh everyone and that we have the necessary immigration systems in place to welcome immigrants from all skill level and qualifications because that's really what an economy needs to be able to resilient and to prepare for uh, future shocks mm-hmm.
1: I was wondering, uh, I'm curious on your your perspective on this because I don't think I've actually read this and this is, you know, some have, uh, you know, on the temporary foreign worker sort of side of things, some have argued that it should be essentially permanent resident status upon arrival in Canada. Uh, the senator has has done a motion in the Senate talking about having you know per- pathways to permanency for temporary workers. Where does the conference board or where do you I guess individually at the very least maybe not just the conference board stance? Uh, where do you sort of see that sort of TR to PR situation? And and should we create more pathways to permanency
2: for temporary workers? Yeah, Uh, I will start with individually, and I will leave the conference board (laughs) position to (laughs) (laughs) him. Smart. (laughs) Uh, Personally, I think having uh, tr to pr pathways and providing uh, providing permanent residency upon arrival has huge benefits for the workers. I think it will help uh, address. the challenges that they face, for instance, in farm work, for instance, in food manufacturing around, you know, when to, you know, how to express their rights when there's an employer violation, how to raise their voice, uh, you know, not not be worried about whether they will be able to stay in Canada, whether they will be deported, whether they will come back next year. I think addressing these challenges will have huge benefits for them and also for Canada, as we just discussed, creating more uh, resilient sectors does require essential workers to be permanently in Canada. We cannot afford when the next pandemic happens you know to kind of struggle how to fill these vacancies and the employers are continuing to suffer because of that but i think we should also remember that essential jobs need to be compensated in accordance with our need on essential skills because as long as you know that gap is there the domestic workforce will always be turned off and uh, it's really important to see this you know as, as a holistic solution where we improve the conditions of essential work but also build pathways for uh Temporary workers to come as permanent residents.
0: So, so can I ask you a question, Yilmaz and Ian? Uh, when I have proposed that uh, essential workers in the in the ag industry or in the in the health industry, personal support workers, uh, meat packers, truck drivers, uh, be provided a pathway to residency either immediately or on I- on arrival or or on par with temporary foreign workers who are skilled. Uh, The the, the pushback I get from the government is this, and I'd like to hear your opinion on it. It is the cost of integration, because when people come in as permanent residents or or, 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 are provided a route to permanent residency, they have the right to bring in their families. And the cost of integration uh, to individuals who may not be as far along even in their own countries on the educational uh, 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 field in school or high school um, or, or other uh, 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 indicators. So the cost of integration would really be too huge for Canada.
3: Yeah, um, I'll start with that and then and then backtrack a little bit to this sort of broader question that Paul asked. Um, So the reason that we have the the sort of main economic system that we have now that doesn't focus on specific job areas that focuses purely on social capital is because through, you know, broad kind of long term economic research, we've learned that these factors that people are given points for are the factors that sort of lead to long term resilience within the Canadian economy. So education, language, skill, age, um, experience in Canada. These are the things that tend to align with um, long term economic success, even if there's an initial uh, blip during the the settlement and adjustment period, long term people tend to perform. I think that there is a, a legitimate concern that if we were to bring in a lot of people that didn't have as many of those resiliency factors but fit a very specific uh, hole in our labor market that if that labor market reality shifted um, what what will happen with uh, with those people so just to focus on agricultural workers if language skills aren't strong um, if work experience is relatively short um, if education is lower and they've been living in a smaller sort of rural community without as much support to be close to uh, where the work is what will happen to them then? And so I do think that um, I, I, I think uh, that the evidence shows, kind of as Yilmaz pointed to, that there are clear benefits across all a whole bunch of different areas of temporary residency, where pathways to permanent residence would certainly benefit the newcomer, but also Canadian employers, communities, the broader Canadian economy. I think the evidence is there that some of this is absolutely um, open to, to to strong argument, but I think we need to balance it. You know, right now we have okay. a system that, on the one hand, um, looks at economic immigrants who we mostly leave on their own so we provide settlement services that are free, but beyond that it's sort of up to them to figure out how to um, integrate and, and, and get, it, get, get work and survive in, in this sort of Canadian labour market. And then we have pure humanitarian refugees where there's a larger degree of settlement services. We might need something kind of in the middle, um, a higher degree of potential support and, and potential to build resilience um, for people that might not, we can't just assume they're going to be automatically very successful if their initial opportunities don't work. Out. I don't think it's good for immigrants or good for Canada if we were to just assume these folks will be OK um, regardless of how okay. the labor market might shift.
0: So let me pursue the other objection, sure. which, which I have heard time and time again. Oh, if you give a temporary migrant laborer who's working on a mushroom farm permanent residency, they will leave the sector and move on to another job and, and therefore our labor market needs will be unmet. What's your response to
3: that? Yeah, I mean, specifically in agriculture, um, where there's such a high reliance on temporary foreign worker labor because of um, the sort of lower labor costs, I think that's a legitimate concern that they might have, um, that once someone is a permanent resident uh, they and they have full options, they, they may go somewhere else. Um, but I think it's up to those employers to sort of try to be competitive then you know I think that we're in a vulnerable position in that industry relying exclusively on on a churn of temporary workers every single year. I think they and many people with to their credit. Many people within that industry agree on this that they'd rather have stable long term workers that they can actually grow within the industry sure. that they don't have to constantly do this sure. bureaucratic churn. Uh, mm-hmm. So I think there are actors and employers within that industry that really agree with this. Um, but I think we want to move to a solution where it's more um, Permanent workers, um, and then we leave it to the to the sector and, and to individual employers to try to entice workers to uh, to stay, just like anyone else in in the labor market would, to compete for um, for those people. But giving them a leg up by bringing them workers that have a high likelihood of being interested in working in their in their sectors, at least to start. Yuma's any thoughts on that?
2: um i don't think there is necessarily data and evidence showing that you know once somebody gets permanent residence and they are you know previously a temporary worker that they can just switch sectors or jobs you know do do they have the relevant skill sets and qualifications is it that easy to make a transition i think that's an area where uh, i think there's a lot of uh, mm-hmm. Uh, discussion, but we don't necessarily have the data and evidence to, you know, back uh, back the argument, but I think what's really important uh, as Ian said is that at some point, you know, the discussion around kind of creating the pathways to permanency, creating the right immigration system that fills essential occupations needs to go hand in hand with the discussion of how are these jobs being compensated? How is retention? How do we prov- provide, you know, advancement opportunities to people in there? And these are attractive, uh, desirable jobs for for the local workforce.
3: Yeah, it's almost, we, we almost created a contradiction there between these two responses, right? On the one hand, I'm saying maybe we should be concerned um, if people don't have a lot of experience and they come into these sectors, will they be able to jump to other places if that work becomes short? On the other hand, there's some employers that are saying as soon as they have permanent residency, they're going to jump. There's so yeah. I think what Yolmes says is exactly right. We need more evidence yeah. on this. We need to better. Yeah. And, and, and frankly, the pandemic's provided us an opportunity to do that. There's a whole bunch of people in these sectors who have been given a pathway to permanent residency that's atypical. Um, so let's let's observe their experiences and sort of see what we can learn about this.
0: Yeah. And, and economists I talk to say this, uh, supply and demand, if you reduce the, the supply of labor, then the wages will go up. So, uh, you know, someone who picks mushrooms in a farm and makes, what, $20 an hour, uh, the price will go up to $50 an hour and the price of mushrooms will go up. And, and that's the way the economy works. So for me, as, a, as, as someone who's really interested in immigration, I'm not an economist, I try and sort all these things out. So really appreciate your help uh, in this. So on to our next question. We deviated quite a bit. Back to you, Paul. <laughs>
1: well, I, I was just uh, I was just gonna ask, um you know, we're going into a new legislative session. Uh, parliament is starting up again soon. Um, you know, we we actually just recently had a conversation with uh, you know someone that works in the immigration sector as well, basically, and he made the point that you know we're we're a land of uh, pilot projects. Uh, we haven't had uh, you know any legislation really since the citizenship legislation in 2016. Uh, you know, there's been a bit of change here and there, perhaps in like a BIA a few years ago when it came to asylum seekers and things like that. Um, if you had your sort of vision of where we should be going uh in the next few years and uh where would that where where do you think we should be going on immigration and what should we be doing uh, uh you know over the next number of years to make the system better it's a
3: complicated time to ask that question <laughs> because uh, there's just been so. And much. And we have to... a new
1: minister as well. So and we have uh, a new minister.
3: Know. Yeah. And so yeah. we'll wait to see a little bit more about what what his vision for uh, for the for the, the department and, and for immigration is. I'm excited to learn more. But um, yeah, it's an interesting time to ask that. I don't. I, I think I'd be really nervous if you asked me to commit today uh, to how we should reform the system because I actually and and this is a very director of a research area kind of answer, but. I think with all the disruption that's happened, with all the innovation that's happened uh, in in welcoming uh, temporary residents, those with more Canadian experience, we have a lot that we can learn over the next few years by simply watching and observing um, how these folks do in terms of their integration, in terms of their settlement patterns, in terms of how they uh, perform and settle into the economy and the labour market. Uh, We'll learn an awful lot about the value of Canadian experience uh, as a student, as a worker um, over the next couple of years that'll inform exactly the types of questions we were just talking about, about how can we offer more effective pathways from temporary to permanent residency. So if I had my uh, my choice, I guess I'd ask the government to uh, devote a lot of resources to really carefully studying and understanding uh, what happens over the next few years. And then, and I think in three to five years, uh, we might have the basis to really transform the program in a pretty significant way to rebalance it potentially um, between the sort of broad social capital system that we've relied on for a long time and a more targeted system that tries to get people into uh, roles up and down uh, the sort of skill ladder um, that that could be really effective in the Canadian economy and give opportunities to immigrants who might not otherwise have had opportunities to come to Canada. Um, Yilmaz, do you have anything more like ambitious or immediate? I just want Um, to punt the ball down the field a little bit.
2: (laughs) I think you covered it. Well, it's really about looking at the results of all the experimentation that has happened during COVID you know, changing composition of immigrant intake uh, change in how the services are being provided and we will see how actually the immigrants that are becoming uh, the uh, newcomers who were admitted during the pandemic. How will they perform in the economy compared to their predecessors? How will they adapt? Will they, you know, to what extent they will be successful? So I think that would really inform the, both the selection and the supports. Uh, side in the immigration system going forward, so we will we will have a lots of data and insights to study in the in the coming months and years. You made me think so. of one thing. I could throw one thing that's actually decisive, which is um, like
3: we see good evidence for for continuing to increase immigration levels, and and we'll see very soon. I think the government's new. Uh, levels plan to see if they're continuing on the trajectory that they set post pandemic. Uh, but settlement service funding hasn't kept up with that. Um, settlement service funding uh, hasn't sort of grown as the sort of levels targets has grown. So I guess if I had one thing, I would say uh, we, we can't let that too fall far too far fall, fall too far uh, behind. We want to make sure that settlement services are are well resourced, especially if we're going to be introducing more diversity of skills, experience, education into, um, in, into the, into the, into society and into the labor market.
0: True, so you know I'm an immigration junkie as I think uh, you both are as well, so we could carry on forever. Uh, But I have one uh, question before we get to the final one and it is this. Let's talk about international students for a bit. Uh, Low hanging fruit for Canada. Uh, They've studied in Canada, they speak the language, they've got degrees, credentials won't be an issue. But recently we've seen really disturbing uh, uh, media reports on how that international student stream has elements of abuse uh, that do not speak to our uh, either to our advantage, our reputation, or to the lives of the people who are impacted. So if there is a change to be made, since we're talking about changes, what do you think should be done to keep our flow of international students strong because we need them, but also to leach out this abuse that is apparently prevalent in many parts of the system? Yeah, um, that's
3: a fantastic question and one that we're very, very focused on. We're actually hoping uh, we have one project starting right now uh, that's underway that's looking at the degree to which international students utilize uh, the different pathways that are available across the system to become permanent residents uh, so um, we're, we're gonna learn a little bit just a basic information through that but our long-term interest really isn't exactly this question you know what's going on with uh, the growth in international students what are the objectives of students coming into the system who are the um, the different organizations and players in the system that are influencing things and and what the problem is we have a coordination problem right you know we the uh, international students are not chosen by governments they're chosen by
1: post-secondary
3: understand. institutions yeah. and post secondary institutions aren't choosing students with an immigration objective in mind they aren't even always necessarily choosing them with the purest of pedagogical uh explanations in mind. This is a this is an economic question um, for them. It's a balance book question. Um, you know, as provinces have put less and less money into post-secondary institutions, but ask them to do more and more. International students and un- and sort of unregulated international student tuition has been one of the only places where institutions can consistently grow their revenue. So they're operating with a set of incentives where the only way they can grow financially, really, for the most part, um, and the-, the only lever that they have really strong control over is international student recruitment. Um, provinces don't want to invest more or haven't really wanted to invest more in post secondary, so they've been kind of hands off about that question. And the federal government has just continued to issue visas without really. Any attempt to to coordinate or limit. And as a result, the the system isn't, this isn't an immigration policy per se anymore. It's it's really a post secondary um, uh, finance and and recruitment uh, policy. And as a result, um, you know, at the very highest level, um, in our best, you know, institutions, uh, the the sort of overall trend is bringing in brilliant young people um, who get good education and some of whom hopefully choose to stay in Canada if they want to. Um that seems to be working okay. But in other institutions, people are coming here not because they necessarily want to study in Canada or not because they necessarily want a Canadian credential, but just because they see going through the institution as a pathway to citizenship. Um, and that's, no one is really getting the thing that they want in that situation. So I think, you know, if I could change things, we need a more coordinated system. We need a slightly more honest system about the objectives of the different players. Um, but it's a really hard nut to crack because institutions are genuinely strapped for um, for funding uh, to accomplish the goals that are being put on them by governments. And, and it's it's challenging to see what we could replace that with besides just tons more government funding, um, which obviously isn't uh, in, in great supply right now.
0: Well, I certainly will look forward to that report. I have my own opinions on on what the government must do because, uh, you know, this is a key advantage that Canada has, and we should not uh, dissipate it without paying attention to the issues on the edges. But yeah. I, I have a feeling, Paul that uh, we can carry on this conversation forever, <laughs> but we actually need to ask a last question. Is that OK? What do you think? Do we still Absolutely, have time yep. to ask? ask the last one
1: one last question (laughs) one last question okay i I, I think i think it's one of the and i'll go back to one of the things that you said ian i think uh right at the outset is that you're noticing uh so far that uh and well i guess even maybe the backlog of you know 1.8 million sort of suggests that uh you know that people still want to come to canada uh, but the question is, uh, the last question, I guess, is, you know, how do we re- remain competitive? How does Canada remain competitive in still attracting newcomers to Canada and, and at the higher and higher levels that we're trying to do uh, now with the, uh, you know, with the, the you know, levers that we're trying to bring into Canada? So what can we do to remain competitive there?
3: Um, a lot of what we've already been doing—you um, know, having a system that is open, that is stable, um, that has you know a clear positive orientation towards immigration, and that that's known internationally. Um, the things that hurt our competitiveness are things like gigantic backlogs, operational issues, um, reputational questions, uh, whether it's with international students or people not um, you know, having their sort of economic and, and settlement ambitions realized once they come to Canada. We need to keep working on those things in order to be competitive, but there's a lot that we already do right and, and that is borne out in, um, in, in the popularity of Canada as a destination. Um, when we get into the more nitty-gritty of specific skills or specific industries, uh, that, that becomes a bit more interesting and complex and involves employers and governments and combined efforts, but uh, overall it's, it's having a stable, well-run system that projects to people that this is a place that immigrants can come and be successful and welcomed and, and part of the fabric of, of Canada. Um, Yomas?
2: Yeah, uh, I completely agree with Ian. I think when immigrants have positive settlement experiences, that they enhance Canada's reputation abroad through word of mouth, through what how they share their experience. More people are interested to come. So ensuring that you know, building on what we already do well, and kind of building on that, addressing. Uh, issues like underemployment, unemployment, providing better economic pathways to all immigrant groups, regardless of the background, leveraging their skill sets, I think will help in terms of attractiveness. And perhaps it's also, you know, kind of thinking about how immigration relates to other policy areas. For instance, creating a conducive business environment may attract immigrant entrepreneurs, top tech talent, and as as we said, you know, throughout uh, the discussion, we need immigrants with all skill sets and all resources. So I think the policy side should match that within immigration and, you know,
1: Policy areas, and just quickly, Senator, before you wrap up, I just this isn't a, a question; it's more of a comment. We have heard as well that that immigration needs to become more client focused. You know, immigrants are people; they seem to have a difficult time navigating the system more thought there in my opinion needs to be done because it, you know we get as the senator said we get so many letters emails everything about where is this where is that i haven't heard this it's got to become a more client focused sort of situation sorry senator, uh, wrap it up there
0: Lots and lots of good thoughts. Thank you Ian and Yilmaz for joining us today and when your study on international students is is published, I'm hoping you will come back and talk to us again about it. That is a personal interest of mine and and one I think that speaks to our ambitions uh, in many, many ways. To our listeners, be sure to check out our other episodes and subscribe, subscribe to the podcast. We welcome your suggestions and topics of speakers for future episodes, and we will continue in this way to move the needle as we examine some of our most wicked problems and going ahead. Thank you all.